Welcome to another episode of Tectonic. My name is Mark Hurst. I will be your host for the next hour here on WFMU, Freeform Station of the Nation, live from downtown Jersey City in the great state of New Jersey. Thanks for being with me. I have an unusual show for you this evening, and it's unusual in its in its construction, I guess you could say, but the, the content is just as important as any other recent show you might have heard on Tectonic, uh, and I will explain. In fact, it may be even more important than some recent shows. I don't know. We'll see. I don't play favorites, but I think this... We're going to be talking about cybersecurity this evening, and it is long overdue that I devote a show to this topic because over the years, the show's been on for five and a half years, I will, I will read a headline here or there that has something to do with cybersecurity, and I always think when I'm reading some of these, man, I've got to, I've got to dig into this at some point because this is an ongoing issue, actually an accelerating and, and growing threat to all of us, and simply reading a headline out here and there is, is not sufficient to really cover the, the gravity of this matter. So a few months ago, I came across this book uh, by Nicole Perlroth called This Is How They Tell Me The World Ends, The Cyber Weapons Arms Race. Now, this book originally came out two years ago in 2021, but I picked it up because it was uh, it, it came out newly in paperback in February of this year, just a few months ago. And my intent was to bring Nicole onto the show, as I usually do with authors, and we were going to talk about her book and cybersecurity using her book as a lens onto this larger issue. And as, as luck would have it, we were unable to, so far, we were un- unable to schedule a conversation. I do hope to have... Nicole on the show at some later date, but I felt like, look, it's it's been three months since the book was out in paperback. Let me go ahead and talk about the book this evening, and maybe we'll do a follow-up conversation with Nicole on some, some future show. So this is the unusual construction of the show. Uh, I'm going to be talking about a book without the author. <laughs> I don't think I've ever done that before, but it's not just the book. Uh, I have some other uh, news stories if we have time, and I think we will, and I hope we will, um, I can give you an update on some recent headlines having to do with cybersecurity that show where this problem has gone, this challenge has gone since uh, Nicole wrote the book in, in I guess, 2020, and then there was a, and she wrote an afterword in 2022. But even even after 2022, there's some news that you should know about. So this show uh, is, is, is going to draw heavily on This Is How They Tell Me the World Ends by Nicole Perlroth, but I hope, given the time, that uh, it will not exclusively draw from this book. Um, so that's why I titled the, the book, sorry, that's why I titled this evening's episode Cybersecurity and How the World Ends. Now, let's just dive right into it. Oh, by the way, if you want to join the, in the live listener chat, go to WFMU.org, click playlist and comments, and uh, there's some, there are some tech technicians on the comment board already uh, chatting about what's happening. 
And if you're listening to an archive or podcast in the future, go to tectonic.fm, T-E-C-H tonic.fm, and click the playlist for May 22, 2023, and you can read the, the comments that occurred in the past from where you are. Uh, okay, so let, let's dive into this book. As you might be able to tell from the title of this book, This is How They Tell Me the World Ends. This is not a bright and cheerful look at how, uh, how awesome a job we've done at securing our systems and how we need to remain vigilant because we're so well protected and let's keep it up. No, 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 no. Uh, this is, if you really take the time to go through this book or, or other books, I mean, this is not the only book on cybersecurity, but if you really take the time to look into this issue, and where we stand, both in the U.S. and in other countries, um, you're going to find that this is one of the more terrifying bits of knowledge that you can gain about technology. That's why I said at the beginning of the show, you might find this to be one of the more important topics we've covered uh, simply simply for the scare factor. <laughs> uh, this really is terrifying stuff uh, about what could happen, and in some cases what already has happened, that really has not gotten a whole lot of attention. Uh, so let's take a couple of steps back, okay? Because I know that I've read this book and I've read some other sources. And although I'm just a generalist, I am not a cybersecurity expert. I do know, uh, I, I, I am familiar with a lot of the terms and I don't wanna just go into some of the storytelling uh, flinging around these technical terms without defining them first. So. Uh, just for the listeners who are not fully up to speed, which is totally fine uh, on, on some of this stuff, let me just give you a little bit of context, okay? When we talk about cybersecurity, uh, you might think, oh, this, is, this has something to do with passwords or system updates or something. Um, yeah, it does, but it's, it's much broader than that. Let me tell you why cybersecurity, which is kind of a boring-sounding uh, term, to encompass what, what the threat is. Why cyber, maybe it should be called world-ending possibilities. How about that? Instead of cybersecurity, can we talk about world-ending possibilities from technology? This is why I call it that. Uh, I'm gonna list some of the systems, platforms, institutions, and infrastructures, okay, that depend on technology that we hope will not uh, end the world on, on our watch. Banks, hospitals, government, and I mean all levels of government from local to state to federal, schools, energy, by which I mean uh, things like nuclear power plants, oil and gas pipelines, the electric grid, utilities, uh, telecom, you know, so all, all phone traffic and text traffic. Uh, the, the food system, uh, big stores and other companies. You heard about the Target hack a few years ago. That's a big store that got hacked because of a cybersecurity issue. So s stores like that and other companies. Smartphones and other devices, which we covered back on March 27 with Sandrine Rigaud on the uh, Pegasus show. You should go back and listen to that if you haven't heard that one. Uh, transportation, by which I mean aviation, trains, shipping, uh, and cars. Cars, by the way, new models of which tend to have some sort of internet connection uh, built in or being built in now. And then, of course, other 
quote unquote smart devices or smart things by, by which they really mean surveillance things. So all of those from tiny little devices like a surveillance device you may have around your wrist up to large uh, globe spanning systems like the internet itself or, 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 or national systems like the power grid uh, all of those are connected into networked technology. This, this giant multi-headed hydra we, we just we call for shorthand the internet, but it's this incredibly uh, complicated and diverse set of digital technologies. And here's, here's my point on all this. All of those items that I just listed, from banks to hospitals and planes and trains and everything, all of those, as they are connected to digital technology, all of those are vulnerable to hacking. Now, what happens if it gets hacked? Well, there's a, a million things that can happen if something gets hacked. But uh, if there's a big enough hack, uh, I can tell you, let's say, if the electrical grid gets a big enough hack, uh, you'll be sitting at home one day, or maybe at work, or maybe in traffic, who knows, and all of a sudden, all the lights around you immediately turn off very quietly you know no no explosion or anything everything just turns off your lights turn off computer turns off the surveillance device on your kitchen counter turns off everything turns off and people say oh is it a is it a power outage and then you go outside and you I, I don't know how we would learn this, but somehow maybe the news finally gets passed. No, this was a, a regional or even a national outage. And it goes on and on and on. And in fact, on the playlist, uh, I have a, 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 a really, as I, I told you, this, this can get kind of terrifying. This is from a, um, well, this is, what, this is what Nicole Perlroth talked about, a hack on the electrical grid. Quote, the consequences of a large-scale attack on the U.S. grid would be catastrophic. And Nicole then quotes a national security letter signed by a bunch of national security uh, experts and insiders that they drafted and sent as a red alert warning to Congress, a congressional committee, which uh, talked about, quote, widespread outages for at least months to two years or more depending on the nature of the attack. So if you can think about a catastrophic hack of the electrical grid that, that uh, is like, a, is like a, uh, a blackout, like we had in New York, what was that, about 15 years ago or something. And that blackout was, was um, it was pretty dicey. You know, actually everybody was on really good behavior in New York. It was, it was actually kind of nice, but everyone was really ready for the, the power to come back on. And I think it lasted... Let me think about this. I think it lasted uh, about 24 hours. And we're talking a hack of the electrical grid could go on for months or a year or even two years. So what does that look like? <laughs> so, I, of course, th this is just the worst case scenario. I don't, I don't mean to say that, that this is necessarily going to happen, but I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to frame this so... You, you understand that cybersecurity, or what did I call it before? World-ending possibilities with digital technology. It's not simply a matter of uh, maintaining pa passwords, good passwords, with, with, uh, with enough weird characters as though the cat walked over the keyboard. That, that, that's not what cybersecurity is about. What we're talking about tonight is real 
real world vulnerabilities to systems that you and your family and your community depend on every single day, electricity, transportation, food, healthcare, government, and so on. All of those are wrapped up in the system. And the problem is, friends, that this system was, was built like a, a giant colossal block of Swiss cheese. It's just, it, it has vulnerabilities all through it. I mean, all through it. When you read this book, this is how they tell me the world ends. You learn how common it is for these systems to be hacked. Um, and I, I'm going to get to that. Anyway, so let's, let's talk about some of these uh, vulnerabilities in these systems, cybersecurity vulnerabilities. Now, when you talk to a cybersecurity expert, which, by the way, once again, I am not. I'm simply a generalist, <laughs> an interested party, a radio host. I kind of have... Uh, some some general experience for a long time in the tech industry, but I'm not an expert in cybersecurity, so I'm doing my best here. But a, as I understand it, when you talk to actual experts in cybersecurity, and you ask them what are what are what kinds of vulnerabilities are there out there, uh, either for an iPhone or for an electric grid, anything in between, what they'll tell you is that there's one big category of really obvious vulnerabilities that uh, you might call rudimentary, and here I'm quoting Nicole's book, rudimentary attacks like phishing scams, stolen passwords, lazy configuration mistakes, or lack of multi-factor authentication, where you have to sign in by getting a text from the bank to your iPhone and then put in the little code from the text. Anyway, all of that is just basic, what you might call digital hygiene. And for people and companies, institutions that don't practice good digital hygiene, it's really easy for hackers to steal the password or gain unauthorized access to their systems. And uh, also not updating your system is an easy, really easy way to open up vulnerabilities to, a, to a, a phone or a computer. Once again, go back and listen to my March 27 interview with Sandrine Rigaud on her book Pegasus, which talks about the vulnerabilities of iPhones, the shocking vulnerabilities of iPhones, which Apple will tell you they have patched everything. Don't worry, but uh, we know we know how much we can trust Apple. Anyway, all of those rudimentary vulnerabilities are, are very common, and they are vulnerabilities that we should pay attention to every day. That's th this is uh, this is not to devalue the importance of those everyday. Uh, possibilities of cybersecurity um, problems. However, Nicole Perlroth wrote a book, this is how they tell me the world ends, about a different kind of cybersecurity vulnerability. And this is what you call zero-day exploits. Okay, this is different from someone, someone leaked a password or someone didn't update their system. This is different. This is different. A zero-day exploit, the, the zero uh, refers to how many days the company has known about the exploit. So if it's a zero-day exploit of Microsoft Windows, of which there are many, uh, zero-day would, would mean that Microsoft has known about this exploit for zero days when it, when it comes to light, meaning it's new to them. They didn't know that there was this uh, vulnerability in Windows code. A and presumably they get to work right away trying to patch it. But that's what a zero-day exploit is. So if you're a malicious hacker out there, um, you might want to 
poke at Microsoft Windows. I mean, it could be any system. I'm just kind of picking on Windows because it's used so so commonly, and there are so many exploits out there of uh, Windows. But if you're a hacker, you use your hacking skills to see how you can gain access to a Windows-based system. It could be, I, I, I'm not going to get into all the technical details because, frankly, I'm, I'm not that good at, uh, I, I'm not that experienced in them. But there's a million ways that you could try to break into a Windows-based system. Let's say you're a hacker and you find some way. Maybe it has something to do with, uh, with, with, with Outlook. I don't know. What you could do is you could then uh, go to a marketplace and sell your exploit or try to sell your exploit. Say, I have a way into Windows-based systems that Microsoft doesn't know about. No one, has, no one else has ever published this particular exploit, and I am willing to sell it to you, whoever's on, who's ever the buyer in that marketplace, for X number of thousands or tens of thousands or maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars. This, again, for uh, Tectonic listeners is not new this idea of selling zero-day exploits because we talked about it on the Pegasus show on March 27th. At the end of the interview with Sandrine, she talked about how there are uh, hacking companies or cybersecurity companies that are now being offered, one of them claimed, I think it was 500,000 US dollars by Saudi Arabia in order to give up uh, one or more of their zero-day exploits of the iPhone. So there is a marketplace out there for zero-day exploits. And this is what Nicole Perlroth writes about. It's basically, this book is basically a history of the marketplace of zero-day exploits, uh, of again, of which there are many. And they are targeting all sorts of uh, institutions, both in the U.S. and elsewhere. And you can imagine that if you have an exploit that you are confident could take down uh, maybe not the whole electrical grid, maybe even just a, a part of the U.S. electrical grid. That could be very, very valuable for some state actor out there that uh, wants to have a weapon pointed at the U.S. and has a lot of money. And uh, Pearl Roth names names. And I, I don't mean for that specific example of the electrical grid, but just in general, the, the state actors that are very interested in, uh, in, in gaining access to exploits against us would be North Korea, Iran, uh, and uh, Russia, to, for, for starters. There are others. Uh, she also mentions Saudi Arabia at some point and UAE, although I'm not sure uh, if it's quite the level of, of the other uh, countries. But certainly North Korea, Iran, and Russia play uh, recurring parts in, in, in the stories in, the, in Nicole's book. So again, cybersecurity is important for us to talk about, and there are uh, vulnerabilities of different types, but really tonight we're talking about the zero-day exploits. And the risks of these breaches are that data can be leaked, you know, so, for example, you remember the Target breach a few years ago? That was really well known because that was one of the big breaches. I think, if I remember right, that the hackers went in, they gained access to the financial system within Target, and they were able to uh, leak the credit card number. If I'm Again, this is all from memory. I think they leaked the credit card numbers of uh, many, many, maybe a million uh, Target customers. So that was an example of a leak. There can also be theft. Uh, the the uh, great um, 
risk to us in terms of uh, espionage is China has done an, an immense amount of commercial espionage. In fact, uh, I'm coming up to my notes here. In the book, Nicole Prolroth writes about writes quite a bit about Chinese espionage of U.S. companies, and she writes by 2015. Okay, so this is this is now eight years ago, but but as far back as 2015, quote, China had already collected enough U.S. intellectual property. This this again is from online hacks. Okay, of government and corporate systems. So the Chinese hackers funded by the Chinese Communist Party gain access to American systems, and they're able to draw down all sorts of files that the American company or government office uh, intended to remain secret. And so the the Chinese hackers come in and, and get these files. So again, Pearl Roth writes, China had already collected by 2015 enough U.S. intellectual property to last it well into the next decade. Chinese hackers had taken everything from the designs for the next F-35 fighter jet to the Google code, the U.S. smart grid, and the formulas for Coca-Cola and Benjamin Moore paint. Uh, did you know that the Coke formula had, had been hacked by Chinese hackers? I did not know that until I read. Uh, maybe it was in the news and I missed it. But that just gives you a sense, some of the examples and some of the scale of um, state actor hacking that's going on just in terms of theft of data. So that's different That's different from leaks. And then, of course, there's damage and loss. Um, damage I'm going to get to when I talk about Stuxnet. And then there's loss. Of course, there's a scourge of what's called ransomware. I'm sure most listeners have heard of this. Ransomware is uh, another cybersecurity issue right now in which hackers break into a system and they implant malware on the system so that when people in the company or the government office or the school or the hospital, they try to log on to their uh, system at work, uh, a, a window comes up that says, you're not allowed to log in. We're not going to let you log in. You need to pay us a ransom payment of 1000 or 10000 or $100,000, and you need to do it by X date, or we're going to start deleting files permanently off of the system. And uh, there, there, there are whole books on ransomware, and I could do a whole show just on ransomware. But this is just to say there is uh, a vulnerability in terms of data loss that is, that, and damage that is uh, part of these cybersecurity threats. And by the way, this book came out in 2021 originally with a little bit of an update uh, earlier this year for the paperback and since then there is there is still news coming out every week about cybersecurity vulnerabilities including zero day exploits so i just gave you one example up top on the playlist that um, from bleeping computer apple fixes three new zero day exploits to hack iPhones and Macs. So this is still very much a current issue, as, and that was from May 18. So four days ago, friends, four days ago, Apple announced that they had issued a patch for three new zero-day exploits, uh, again, targeting the iPhone and uh, Apple Mac computers. So this, this stuff is, is happening as we speak right now. These zero-day exploits are still very much active. 
Okay, so let's talk about a little bit about the stories in Nicole Perlroth's book. So now we understand why this, I hope we understand why this issue is so important to pay attention to and that Nicole is focusing more on zero-day exploits as opposed to the more uh, everyday garden variety uh, cybersecurity threats of, of phishing scams and so on. So just in terms of zero-day exploits, that, like I said, there's this marketplace that has grown up where hackers are able to sell access to their exploits to whoever the buyers are. And the buyers uh, are generally the well-funded state actors, as I said before. It's uh, Russia, North Korea, uh, Iran, and I suppose China is in there as well. And as we learned from Sandrine Rigaud, there are states like uh, Saudi Arabia that are allegedly offering giant sums as well. So there is a robust marketplace uh, within state actors. Now, one, one state actor I haven't mentioned yet, but it's a big one, is the United States. <laughs> we're in there as well. I did not mean to leave them off as though, oh, we're, we're pure. We would, we would never sully our, our uh, reputation by, by engaging in zero-day exploit uh, stockpiling. No, the U.S. Is, is, was for a long time the leader. We, we were the pioneer and the leader in uh, stockpiling these things. The, the idea being uh, that it's, as the subtitle of the book says, it's a cyber weapons arms race. It matches, very much matches the nuclear arms race of the Cold War in that if, if we just look at uh, the US and Russia, okay, which comes up a lot in this book, the, let's say the Russians say, well, we have an exploit that could take down some or all of your electrical grid. The US says, well, we have an exploit that would take down your, I don't know, something else. You just make something, hospitals or your own electrical grid. Or I, I have no idea. So by stockpiling these exploits, states are able to deter attacks on their systems. So in, it, it, because of uh, the, the specter of mutually assured destruction, which those of us of a certain age remember from the 1980s, and I suppose is still, uh, unfortunately, still active in terms of a nuclear exchange. The idea of deterrence is the more nuclear weapons you have, the safer you get, because no one would ever think of attacking a, a nuclear armed superpower, because then that would be the last thing they ever did. Well, similarly, this cyber weapons arms race is, uh, is growing up, has grown up around the same idea that that countries are stockpiling zero-day exploits that are pointed at other countries' critical infrastructure, and they act as uh, as implicit threats. You know, don't you dare do anything to us because we'll do something much worse to you. So uh, this this leads us to this very precarious position that we're in, in which all these major I don't know if we can call them. Super, digital superpowers, but the, the, these, these state actors that I've listed already have these vast uh, tro treasure troves of zero-day exploits that are pointed at each other, and they're all saying, you know, no one move, you know, because we've got a gun pointed at you, you have a gun pointed at us, I have a gun pointed at him, he's got a gun pointed at me, and it's, it's very unstable. If one thing goes wrong, then a lot of bad things could happen. And it doesn't even have to be much like the, the nuclear standoff. It doesn't even have to be intentional. I mean, if you have read 
think Eric Schlosser wrote a book. I can't remember the name off the top of my head, but he wrote a, a book about a few years ago about the uh, the nuclear weapons and, and the accidents around nuclear weapons during the Cold War, and how many of them were really were just accidents. They were not uh, one. It wasn't the U.S. or the Soviets trying to get the other? It was just something went wrong, and we came very, very close to Armageddon several times simply because of human error and systems error that, you know, were because of bad designs that the humans put in. And so we're, we're, we're leading ourselves up to the same precipice in that these cyber weapons could go off by accident and really bad things could happen. And so Nicole quotes the cybersecurity expert that says, and I'm just going to quote this, you know, I'm just the messenger, friends. I'm just trying to report this. I'm, I'm, I'm not uh, amplifying the language at all. This is a direct quote from this book. The most likely way for the world to be destroyed, most experts agree, is by accident. Okay, and, and there they're talking about these, these zero-day exploits pointed at critical infrastructure. Um, we now live in, in danger of a, quote, cyber Pearl Harbor, Pearl, Pearl Roth writes. So we, and that would be if it was intentional. So whether it's intentional or accidental, there are giant systems in the balance that are vulnerable to these cybersecurity exploits. Uh, and so one of the questions that comes up is, how do we get to this point where we have systems that are so full of holes, like Swiss cheese? How do we, how do we decide to build these? How do we go for, for 30 years building out these systems? that are so vulnerable. And uh, Perlroth writes, in the United States, convenience was everything. It still is. We had bought into Silicon Valley's promise of a frictionless society. We had never paused to think that along the way, we were creating the world's largest attack surface. We failed to see that the world of potential war has moved from land to sea to air to the digital realm. And what Pearl Roth is arguing there is that the nature of war has now changed. Uh, you know, just, just like a, a, as, as she said, you know, at some point war moved to the air. And so countries that did not have uh, capabilities in, in the air were vulnerable to airborne attack. And here we have, uh, we have moved into a new era in which these digital uh, vulnerabilities are the new terrain for the next war. And, and you know, these, these, the thing is, these exploits uh, tie into war-fighting systems. So we, we, uh, we saw that the Chinese espionage included the, 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 uh, the code for the F-35 uh, strike fighter. And in another headline, I think I, I read out to you a couple of years ago, our nuclear systems were breached. Where, where the nuclear weapons are stored. And so it's not simply that the lights would go off. The hacks can affect how our, our uh, military systems work or not work or work accidentally. So um, this is because we bought into, as Pearl Roth says, the idea of a frictionless society, everything is gonna be convenient. And so the more convenience you have in these systems, 
typically the less secure they become. And so by buying into Silicon Valley's lines about the, this utopian future, we've left ourselves incredibly vulnerable. So back in where this, where this uh, cyber weapons bazaar really started, as I said, the U.S. was the pioneer. It was back in the 1990s. There were these government contractors that were buying zero-day exploits on behalf of U.S. intelligence agencies, by which I mean the CIA and the NSA. Uh, and amassing the stockpile, she writes, became a competitive enterprise. It was not abnormal to find multiple nation states listening in on the same machine. In other words, we had, even back in the 1990s, we were starting to stockpile these exploits. It was really led by the NSA, and then the CIA got into it and other nation states were getting into it as well. And, um, and then we get to Stuxnet. So the U.S. had stockpiled all these zero-day exploits, and there was this geopolitical matter that was very concerning to the U.S. and Israel, which was that the, in Iran, they were beginning to, uh, they were beginning to use their uh, uranium, I'm blanking on the, I'm blanking on the name, but they were they were spinning in the centrifuge. Thank you. They were using these centrifuges to uh, spin up their uranium to make uh, nuclear bombs. And they were on track to have enough uranium for a bomb in I don't know how many months. Nicole has a whole chapter on this on this issue. And the U.S. was able to infiltrate the uh, the facility where the centrifuges were. This is the uh, Natanz facility, which had 8,700 centrifuges, and they were able, the U.S. was able to get a worm into the systems that caused the centrifuges to go faster and faster and faster until they burned out and blew up. And in the end, the worm had destroyed 2,000 out of the 8,700 centrifuges. It was, um, I mean, technically, it was a really, really incredible mission in that there, as far as we know, there were no Americans that went on the ground there. They were somehow able to deliver this worm to this uh, supposedly secure facility. There was also some question as to whether the Israeli uh, forces were involved, Mossad was, were involved as well, and she leaves that as a question mark. And I'll let, let other readers who know more about it dive into that. But it was a it was a U.S. led effort and it was largely successful, except for the fact that the Stuxnet worm then escaped from the facility and started bouncing around the rest of the Internet. Now, it ended up not having much of an effect on uh, other systems. It did arrive in the U.S., but it didn't have a great effect because it was really optimized for the centrifuges in the Natanz facility. But it foreshadowed what could happen in the future and in the end what did happen in the future in the case of the NSA. The NSA had uh, this incredible trove of really vicious exploits that they had built up over the years and they had never publicized and were just holding again for deterrence, I guess the idea was, against other states. And wouldn't you know, the NSA a few years ago got hacked and all of the exploits got leaked all of them, all of the exploits that NSA had been holding on to. And that did bounce around the internet and have terrible consequences. Uh, remember a few years ago when um, 50 British hospitals 
were, uh, were hit with a ransomware attack. That was based on the NSA exploit. There were other examples too. The point being that as we have uh, spent so, so many resources on building out our expertise, expertise and these exploits of these critical systems, eventually it, 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 it's very possible that they're going to get hacked and leaked out to the bad guys. And then they're going to be deployed against us and our allies. And so there are different cybersecurity experts in this book that say, you know, this is really a loser's game to continually look at, at, at further ways of breaking these systems because let's face it, everybody uses the same systems these days. And so if you're looking at a way to break into, I don't know, Russian or North Korean Windows systems and you figure out a great way to take down a Windows or gain access to a Windows system that happens to be a Russia, if that exploit gets, gets leaked, it's your Windows system that's going to get targeted next. And so this, this stuff rebounds against you at some point. So it's, um, it's, it's really a dangerous game that we have been playing in this new terrain of, of cyber warfare. And this is why at the end of the book, uh, Nicole Perlroff writes, writes the following, the world is on the precipice of a cyber catastrophe. We must stop introducing glaring bugs into our code. Part of the problem is the economy still rewards the first to market. The, quote, move fast and break things mantra that Mark Zuckerberg pushed in Facebook's earliest days has failed us time and time again. And so, again, we continue in, the, in, in our normal process of writing code. We continue to do this without security in mind. We're doing it only for convenience. But make, make it as fast as possible, get to market as fast as possible, and scale it up, the kinds of things that the venture capitalists are always talking about, without ever thinking, you know, in this headlong rush for these profits, these scalable profits, we're, we're deploying unsecure systems that are going to have holes that will be targeted against us and our friends at some point. So it'd be so much better if we had a little more mature attitude about the technology that we're building, rather than making a few tech bros rich, how about making technology that actually works and is secure and does not open up holes in, in which people in any country are liable to be hurt because of them? But don't tell that to Mark Zuckerberg. Finally, this is the last thing I'm going to say about this. Uh, the last quote I'm going to read from this book is from the afterword that Nicole Pearl Roth wrote in 2022. So again, this, this is just a few months ago she wrote this. Most of the country's 50,000 water plants, by which she, I think she means the water treatment plants, are run by small nonprofits and staffed by only a handful of employees, few of whom are fluent in code or even cognizant of the threat. All you need to remotely modify excuse me, all you need to remotely poison America's drinking water is a stolen password. And um, that's, that should be terrifying to us because again, we're not, here we're not talking about all the hospitals, the banks, the electrical grid and everything else. Just talk about the water supply. This is, as she says, this is a decentralized, well, it's decentralized in that there are 50,000 different water treatment plants but they're centralized in that they all use the same sorts of systems that you've heard about, you know, Windows and Oracle and everything else that has these known security issues. And they are not 
staffed by these giant teams of security researchers who are going to be able to keep these things secure. That's just one example of the, of the daily vulnerability that we live with in this country, and I'm sure is matched in other countries as well. But the, the U.S. in particular, she calls out as being especially vulnerable because we really, we over the last 20 years, we have really turned our entire infrastructure over to digital. We've plugged everything in. Why? Because, oh, you, because the Silicon Valley guys tell us it's all going to be utopia. It's all going to be so efficient. We're all going to be rich and we're all going to go public. It's going to be amazing, except for the fact that you have put everyone's lives at risk because of that attitude, except for that. That's just a great plan, bros. And we in the U.S. have done this. Uh, it's, it's a, it's uh, what do they call it? An own goal. I mean, this was a completely uh, intentional problem that we created for ourselves in this rush for convenience and making eight guys super billionaires on the West Coast. Great job. Great job. Now what are we going to do if the water treatment plants start getting poisoned or the electrical grid comes down or planes start coming out of the sky or trains get derailed? What then? What then? That's the time we're going to say, hey, how are we building code in this country anyway? It's going to be too late to ask it then, won't it? Now, let me tell you a little bit about what's been happening since this book came out. Uh, I, I, I read you one bleeping computer uh, article from just four days ago talking about zero-day exploits being announced by Apple. Uh, nice of Apple to announce those. It would be nice if they announced all the rest of them that they're working on, but good that they're playing whack-a-mole. But th those are hardly the only exploits that we're vulnerable to right now. This is from, again, Bleeping Computer from February 17. GoDaddy, you know this company, this, this domain registrar company, hackers stole source code and installed malware in a multi-year breach. So there's this, there's this uh, software called cPanel. Anybody who's registered a domain may know this. And uh, there, there was breach of that software, that, that critical software for domain management and that is just a continuation of a hack from presumably the same hackers two years ago, 2021, that had 1.2 million WordPress sites hacked. 1.2 million WordPress sites. WordPress is a kind of blogging software. So there's GoDaddy. Here's another one February, just a few days later uh, from CNN on February 22. There was a cyber attack on food giant Dole that temporary sh temporarily shut down North American production. CNN says a cyber attack earlier in February forced produce giant Dole to temporarily shut down production plants in North America and halt food shipments to grocery stores. This stuff is active. It's out there and it's happening every week. And it's important that we pay attention to it. You may say, well, you know, I don't eat Dole stuff. That's not the point. <laughs> it's not the point. If you like or don't like Dole or you like or don't like GoDaddy, this time, it's a company that you, you may not, who knows, you like it or don't like it. Next time, it may be your hospital. Next time, it may be the plane that you're on. Next time, it may be your region's electrical grid. It's time to start paying attention to this. But that's not the worst of it. Are you ready for the worst of it? <laughs> let's, take, let's take a 10-second music break so you can prep yourself for this, and I can also take a drink of water. Okay, shall we? Here's, here's the worst of it. 
in my opinion. Again, I'm just a generalist, but this is, this is what I think is, is the scariest. In the last few months, this company called OpenAI, which is not exactly owned by Microsoft, but it got uh, $10 billion in investment from Microsoft. So Microsoft is heavily invested, let's say, in this company, OpenAI. And OpenAI, OpenAI came, uh, came out with this thing called ChatGPT. I'm sure you've heard of. This is the one where you can type in a prompt, like, write me a book report on the Red Badge of Courage and make it a limerick. And everyone's like, oh, that's so fun. That's so cute. Think of all the things I can do with this generative AI text chatbot. Well, one of the things that ChatGPT has been found to do, the programmers are finding that it can do, is it can write code. Oh, boy. Think of the possibilities. So, of course, all of the owners of these tech companies are saying, oh, this is so great because we're going to be able to do even bigger layoffs. We're going to get rid of even more human programmers, and we'll just use the chatbot to, to create all the code that we need. There's just one thing about that, friends, and that is that you know what humans do when they're in a, a properly run software development team, software development environment? They do what's called code reviews. That's when human beings read through the code and do tests led by humans on the code to make sure there are no glaring vulnerabilities and no horrible outcomes that are going to occur when that code is deployed. Now, again, as we heard earlier, uh, at companies like Facebook, when they're talking about make, make what is it, uh, move fast and break things, they're trying to deploy things as fast as possible. They're trying to be first to market. They do not care about the outcomes. In so many cases, they have shown complete indifference to the outcomes, uh, sometimes lethal outcomes of their code. But in a well-run software development environment, there will be some human code review. And that's not happening if you turn it over to ChatGPT and other generative AI systems. And so there's this guy named Gary Marcus, who I'd love to get on the show at some point. He's an AI expert. He's an author. He was a professor at NYU for a long time. Very smart guy. And he was interviewed by uh, Persuasion recently. This is, just a, this is just two days ago, May 20th, 2023. Here's what Gary Marcus said. People in the last month have been playing around with something called AutoGPT, where an unreliable AI system calls another unreliable system. Let me just back up here. There's this thing called AutoGPT, where instead of a human typing in a prompt and getting the limerick back, humans can now prompt this thing to go and connect with other systems. So rather than just spitting out mushed up Wikipedia answers, it's going out and actually causing changes over on the internet somewhere in some other server. So you, you can have AI systems now both writing code and deploying it on each other's systems with who knows what kind of effects. So here's, here's Gary Marcus again. Just from a cybersecurity perspective alone, that's a complete disaster waiting to happen. If you have bots that aren't necessarily going to do what you want on any given trial, writing code that isn't necessarily going to be reliable, I talked, this is Gary Marcus, I talked to someone very high up at Microsoft recently who had worked in cybersecurity for a long time. And they've spent years trying to teach programmers how to follow certain conventions so that the code will be safe and won't be hacked. That's that code review I was telling you about. Marcus continues, these systems don't have the conceptual wherewithal to do that. 
These systems are not smart enough to say, well, I'm being used now in a phishing thing where people are trying to steal credentials. No, they'll happily comply. You this is Gary Marcus again, continuing. You trust humans to make the decisions, but some fool hooks up a large language model that hallucinates things to the train network and 500 trains go off of bridges. There are some scenarios where humans get fooled by new kinds of things that machines suddenly can do. There are many such possible scenarios, and I think each of them individually is pretty unlikely, but you sum up all of those risks, it's enough to make me nervous. And that's the really bad news, friends, is that before we had these systems, these unsecure systems like Windows and iPhones and everything else, but at least, at least there were human beings who were watching over the code base and trying to play whack-a-mole. You know, they're very good people trying to do their, their best job within the, 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 the guts of these companies. This is not their fault. I salute the cybersecurity engineers wherever they work. If they are really trying to do the good work of, of keeping us safe, they can't help it that the big boss made them deploy, you know, made the software engineers deploy this before it was ready. But at, anyway, you, we have these insecure systems, unsecure systems. At least there are humans inside these companies like Microsoft that are trying to do something about this. As we go into a generative AI future, guess what? The humans are no longer in the loop. Now you have AI systems writing code and deploying code live without any human oversight. And now we wonder, oh my goodness, what's going to happen? What do you think is going to happen? We're on the precipice already. This is the thing. Pearl Roth wrote this book before ChatGPT came out. So everything that she said about a cyber Pearl Harbor and the way the world might end is by accident and we're standing on the precipice and we're looking at catastrophe. All of that came before ChatGPT. And now in the last few months, the geniuses at OpenAI have launched this thing into the world saying, oh, please regulate us because we would love to help you write those regulations so that we can get even more rich and more powerful. Great job, guys. But have you thought about the code that you're deploying automatically without human review. I'm so glad that the CEOs of tech companies are able to do this by firing everybody so that they can build one more wing on their Hamptons house. Good job, guys. But how about for the rest of us where we are living in a vulnerable society when these bugs can come and cause death and destruction at any moment? And we are just doubling down on our vulnerabilities by investing in these generative AI systems that are going to deploy code that could be even more, have even more vulnerabilities that our enemies would just love, would just love to exploit. Can't you just feel it, the possibility of all of the wonderfully horrible things that could come out both in this country and in others when AIs are writing the code without any human oversight? But at least the companies have great profit margins while they're still in existence, while the electrical grid is still in it, while the financial system, while society still has a semblance of working together, while anything holds together at all, at least they are making lots and lots of dollars to add into their latest Hamptons mansion. That's great for them. But when the lights turn off, because of these vulnerabilities, things are going to be very, very different all of a sudden. 
On the playlist, I put a few things under a heading called What You Can Do. Again, the playlist is at WFMU.org. Click playlist and comments, or in the future, go to tectonic.fm, T-E-C-H, tonic.fm, and find the May 22, 2023 playlist and scroll down to this, this section called What You Can Do. First, learn more about cybersecurity. I don't know if you want to read this whole book. It's a good book. It's 400 pages, but read some of the links I put on the site. Listen, listen to the Pegasus interview. Um, and, uh, and okay, let's get, to some, let's get to brass tacks. For anything that you definitely want to hold on to, make a local backup on a non-connected drive that's not connected anywhere. Make a local backup, okay, if you really want to hold on to it. If you really, really, really want to hold on to something, print it out. Put it on paper. And put that paper somewhere where, where it's not going to burn in a safe or something. Don't use QR codes. Just don't use them. Oh, but I'm a millennial and I love scanning menus. No, no, no more QR codes, friends. It's over. Don't click on any links unless you're totally sure you can trust them. Set up two-factor authentication. This is the one where you have to verify your login by getting a text. Go ahead and do that. That's a good idea. Don't use, don't use the same password at multiple sites. Cut down on the number of apps that you use on your phone. Or maybe don't use a smartphone at all. And throw away your luxury surveillance devices, your Apple Watch, your Google Fitbit, just throw them away. Get rid of your surveillance devices at home. The Google Nest, the Amazon Ring, the Amazon Alexa, the Google Home, get rid of them. They're all vulnerabilities. Probably keep your computer and smartphone uh, fully updated with the latest system updates. Just know that updates often will break software that you're used to using. So I've heard you know, people who are, have a perfectly tuned, configured editing suite. They do video or audio editing, and they do a system update, and everything breaks. But if you're not in that situation of having a professional configuration that you really need to keep stable, go ahead and do the updates. Just know that some things are going to change. These companies tend to make their interfaces worse. But at least you'll, you'll, keep, you'll keep up with the whack-a-mole that these companies are playing. And finally, be careful with any payment apps you have on your phone. An app that, that uh, leads to your bank account, be very, very careful with those. Because there's a new, and I put a link to a Wall Street Journal article from Feb 24, a basic iPhone feature helps criminals steal your entire digital life. Um, one thing they talk about is criminals will watch as you type in your passcode, you know, that, that six-digit thing to unlock your phone. They see it from across the restaurant or the bar or in the park or the subway or whatever. They swipe your phone. They run out. They have memorized your passcode. They unlock your phone, and then they drain your bank account using your Venmo or PayPal or whatever into their bank account. Then they, they, throw, they throw away the phone or sell off the phone. Uh, these are the vulnerabilities. I would say be very careful with any app that has access to your bank account. Be very careful with that. Uh, that's about all the time I have for you this evening. I hope this was informative, and I hope I actually do hope it was a little bit terrifying because we need to spend more time, we may need to spend more attention on cybersecurity. You've been listening to the greatest radio station in the world, WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope in New York City and Rockland County at 91.9 FM and online at WFMU.org. Until next time, friends. Avoid Apple, abandon Amazon, forget Facebook, and whatever you do, get off Google. And uh, I want you to stay tuned for the great Dave Mandel, who is coming on with It's Complicated, his prog rock show here in two and a half minutes. It's been a pleasure, friends. 
Let's go out to Robots by the Balanescu Quartet. I'll see you next time. Have a good one. And that's the way. <laughs> and that's the way the show starts. Good evening, folks. It's 7 p.m. here on a Monday evening at listener-supported WFMU. In time for it's complicated. Hosted by me, Dave Mandel. I'm here every Monday at 7. And we bring you we, because I don't want to take the full responsibility myself. We present an hour of Prague and Prague adjacent music. Just there, you may not have noticed. But we heard a slightly different version of our opening theme, 5% for Nothing by Yes. I played, for the, for the very first time, ladies and gentlemen, the Stephen Wilson remix of 5% for Nothing. Stephen Wilson 
is a uh, musician and producer, prog musician, in fact, and producer, and he appears to be the go-to guy when you have a prog album that you want remixed. He's done everything, everything, all the all the Jethro Tull albums, uh, what King Crimson, ELP, Gentle Giant. He's he's the guy, and and my ears don't seem to be good enough to notice the difference in many cases. But I probably just haven't listened closely enough. But anyway, he, the, the, there are reissues of, of you know every classic prog LP in the world uh, that tout a Stephen Wilson remix, and there must be something to it. I've never really listened closely enough, perhaps. Anyway, that's what we just heard there. Yes, to open the show, as usual, and really to open the show, to open the... the the uh, the core of the show, the meat of the show tonight. We're going to begin with a Dutch group that I don't know much about. There doesn't seem to be much information about them out there, but they were active in in the Netherlands, Dutch group, in the early 70s, and I believe they only put one album out, and it's a self-titled LP. The group was called Ahora Mazda, and they put out uh, as I said, just the one album, and we're going to hear a track from it. This is a track called Power from the Dutch group Ahora Mazda. Hey, 
power shows evil, this power shows blood, this power shows that they can't. There's just one remedy against this power, be cool and stay away. Sadness, we kill them with our knives. 